Hello, hello, and welcome to the final episode of season two, our special episode in celebration of Earth Day 2021. In this episode, we're doing something slightly different. We're pulling together the best bits, the lessons learnt, the key themes, the takeaways from across all of our previous six episodes. In the series, we've, we've heard from angels Emma, Evelyn, Beth, Mitzi, Freya and Divya from countries all across the world, including the Philippines, Norway, India, Uganda and the United Kingdom to give you an insight into what it's like to be a climate justice activist in different parts of the globe. There was so much knowledge and wisdom that flowed from each episode, so we thought it would be a lovely celebration to hear the highlights all in one place. We wanted to start with the reason why all of us are united in the first instance, and that is the Arctic. Across the episodes, we've learnt about the significant destruction and willful harm that's taking place there, and there's no two ways about this. What happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. What happens in the Arctic will have significant, dire consequences, not just for the indigenous people of the Arctic, but, but for the rest of the world. So let's hear from the angels. So the Barren Sea and the Arctic, you know, there is as there is everywhere really there is a lot of um, nature that we need to protect and we know that drilling for oil is really it's very ruining to um, the nature and we have seen it in Norway but still we keep drilling for oil unfortunately we keep um, prioritizing that over well a lot of other things that we believe that should be prioritized and yeah, so Arctic angels, as you know, they really work a lot with uh, this moratorium that they won't want in the uh, Arctic. And it kind of fits well together with what we're working at, because as you, as I talked about previously, um, we had this lawsuit where we sued the state in 2016 for giving out licenses to drill for oil in the Barents Sea. And in the Norwegian um, law, it says that the state should try to secure the current and the coming generations and their livelihood. And we believe that they don't do that when they drill for oil, uh, especially in this very, very vulnerable um, area in the, yeah, up north. Should be said, the Arctic is really the battleground for climate change right now. Uh, the sea ice there is melting so much faster. New trade routes are opening up. Politically, it's a little more sensitive. Um, so there is no Arctic treaty like in the Antarctic, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think um, that's why the Arctic needs our uh, advocacy more than any other place in the world right now. As I said, the Arctic and the Antarctic are a focus on the polar ice crisis, particularly the Arctic sea ice, and we're particularly trying to protect it from willful harm at global choices. But to give you an overview of the ice crisis, in less than three decades, we've lost 28 trillion tonnes of ice. That's enough ice to blanket the UK in a sheet 300 feet thick. Um, and for example, in the Arctic specifically in 2020, the Arctic sea ice minimum was its second lowest on record. The ice is the fridge of our planet and it's a crucial climate regulator. So yes, there will be global impacts of this. Ocean warming, food chain um, disruption, droughts, fires, floods, 
uh, food insecurity, biodiversity loss, sea level rise, and they'll cause um, climate migration and, and a whole host of social issues. It's, um, it's Dr. Julian Struva who has said that we are all ice dependent species. We can't plant ice and once it's gone, it, it really is gone. So we need to mobilize now to protect it. So we've just heard what's happening to the Arctic, but one theme that came came up time and time again across the episodes was the question, you know, as someone who doesn't originate from the Arctic or even that area, why, why do you care about what's happening to it and its people? And the answer was all around the idea of global citizenship and a deep understanding that what we do has impact beyond our homes, beyond our communities, and even beyond our countries. You touched a little bit there about global citizenship, and I just wanted to take us back to the Arctic for the second, because people might wonder why it is that people like you and I, who don't live near the Arctic, have such a vested interest in its protection. What would you say to those people? Yeah, I think it's really important, because I do think, you know, you think of the Arctic, the Antarctic, it's not exactly you know that near to you and um, if you don't if you live outside of the arctic circle and i think it is something quite distant in people's minds and you know it's the polar bears it's the kilometers of ice it's all that um, and i think we need to bring it back to the level of as like the arctic angels describe it it's the global commons and what happens in the arctic doesn't stay in the arctic it affects all of us so it's the same way in ireland say we have the gulf stream that regulates our weather the arctic regulates the weather of the entire planet it is essential to maintaining the well-being of the planet and of all of us and protecting us from climate change and i think we really need to take it from that kind of abstract level of something very 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 far away to something that affects the entire global community to explain global commons and i think the easiest example for that is uh, fishing, right? Um, and, and, and the very famous quote, like if you uh, feed a man a fish, um, you know, like uh, for a day and teach him how to fish, um, you know, he will feed himself and everyone, but then uh, he will end up overfishing because of the fact that he doesn't know anything else, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and I think the simplest way to explain to people, especially that what's happening to our planet today is the lack of ownership. Um, and, and the fact is that there are places like Antarctica, the Arctic, um, and a number, uh, number of other places in the world, uh, which are uh, classified as global commons. And the most important thing that we need to know about is that we all own it together. It is said that each one of us owns like a football sized field worth of land in Antarctica. Wow. And, and it, that belongs to us, right? And if you think about it, air, water, everything, uh, we have, we as humans have created these borders or, or put a price on them, but really, they are all something that are available to us as humans and to the other species as well at, at no charge the and you know nature mother nature doesn't charge us for for giving all these amazing elements and uh, abundant uh, you know uh, air water and everything else but uh, what what we have done is uh, consider them as something called finite resources so the antarctic treaty is is the uh, strongest environmental treaty in the history of humankind. Um, it was signed in the year 1959. 
and um, it was further extended in 91. So it is now available or, or it's going to be in effect until the year 2048. Um, but it comes up for review in sometime in the year 2041, which is why the foundation uh, by Robert Swan is, is named after that particular year. Oh. But it's just to show that if we could, you know, really respect nature and say that we could preserve something and, and nurture it in a way that is um, going to help our planet, then we thrive along with it. So it's just a matter of saying that we have to protect our global commons and they will take care of us in return. So truly, I believe that um, global commons are a way for us to unite together um, as, as, a, uh, as a global force and be able to work together to preserve the environment. Obviously, I referred to the polar ice as a global commons. Um, and at Global Choices, we really understand the global commons as the interdependent natural systems crucial to all life. And these can be the oceans, the forest lands, um, a healthy biosphere um, and the polar ice. But typically the global commons have been thought of as areas beyond national jurisdiction. So the high seas, Antarctica, the atmosphere and outer space. Um, progressively, we are understanding though that and we definitely do understand now, I, I think, that we can harm these ecosystems and we can harm um, these life support systems, the polarized oceans, for instance, and it can be within national jurisdiction, but it can have global impacts, devastating global impacts. We have to think about ourselves as one. We have to think about ourselves as global citizens. We have to think about us like the earth and the planet belongs to all of us. We only don't uh, belong to one part of the planet. We are responsible for protecting every part of the planet with something very special because it doesn't remain in the Arctic, it affects all of us. That really inspired me so much. That really touched me so much. I feel, uh, I feel an urgency, I feel the urgency in, 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 in protecting the poles and protecting the ice. I feel it every time, every time I think about the earth, I think about the Arctic, I think about, I don't just think about the forests that are dying, but I want to think about everything. I want to think about all our global commons as very important because uh, without the ice, we shall burn. Without the trees, we shall suffocate. So everything is equally important. We need to fight for all our global commons. We also had some really, really good discussions about the fact that activism is often associated with striking and protests, which we do acknowledge are hugely powerful. And actually, I think it's fair to say that without them, I don't think that the issue of the climate crisis would have risen so highly on many political agendas across the world. But we, we also discussed the fact that activism can take many forms, craftivism, conversations, taking action locally in your own towns and cities, writing to people, you know, those are just a few examples. But, but the movement also requires different skills, artists, writers, accountants, 
managers, lawyers even. And so regardless of your interests and skill sets, you'll have something to offer. So we reached out to other organizations. So we have organizations of pre-med students and organizations of um, like artists, like people who like to draw and organizations of, of um, engineers. And it's really cool because like what happens is you can see how the different backgrounds of the students reflects in how they attack the climate crisis like the engineers will bring in that side of the the coin and the artists will bring in to make sure that our strikes are really pretty and actually <laughs> understandable and the journalist students will be like okay wait this part that you're saying about the science people won't understand what this means and they're like oh right thanks so it's really cool to see how different um backgrounds come into each other and and we also talk a lot with older generations so that they, we can learn from them and really other sectors of society because that is what climate justice has to be it has to be very grounded in the masses and the people that are experiencing the climate crisis firsthand i think that's such um such a lovely illustration there of the fact that if we're going to fight this we need all of those people bringing their special mm. skills and you know their personalities or their talents to the table and sort of bringing that bringing that all together it's such a lovely demonstration of that idea and also the idea that there are many different forms of activism and your forte might not be in going out onto the streets or you may not be comfortable with that but actually you can rally and help where, wherever your talents lie yeah exactly like so there is so much more to activism than the street protests which are very important but like the hours of work behind those are are arguably more important like talking to people and organizing people and getting people on board i would say is is more grueling and time consuming like there are a lot of different strategies and i think one thing really important and really inspiring the climate movement is the amount of different approaches but i suppose the one that I've kind of been leaning towards is that kind of government policy action as well as at a community level, because pushing for that change and pushing, because right now they're the ones making the decisions. And as much as I would like for all of us to be the ones making the decision and for that to change, it is targeting that action and letting them know you, we're not going away, we're here, we're pushing for action and there's nothing you can do about it. So start taking change and making sure that they're listening. Earlier, to be an environmentalist was somebody who, you know, like really, wanted to talk something on the, um, you know, big platforms, like in media, et cetera. But today you can be an environmentalist in your own home. Yeah. Um, there's so much more awareness. Everybody has embraced like, you know, sustainable living and uh, zero waste principles in their own life. So people, people now really value um, the environment much more than they did 10 years ago. Something that was lovely to hear was the lived experiences of the angels and to hear them reflect on how being a woman has shaped their experiences of being an activist and of experiencing the crisis. Here are Eve and Divya sharing their stories. Women are among the most affected by the impacts of climate change. Uh, for example, in my country, women are marginalized. Mm -hmm. Women are not treated equally. They don't have the same rights like men. When the climate crisis happens, you find that women are the most affected because women have to, women have to provide food. They have to put food 
for their families. They have to provide food and water for their families. But of course, when the climate crisis happens, when some of these disasters happen, you find that food is destroyed. You find that there's no water for them to feed their families and for the girls because of the climate disaster, because people have uh, 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 very poor girls in exchange for wealth, because this is the only way that they, they will get rich. So they, they give them away for marriage in exchange for wealth. So women experience these impacts so much. They experience them directly. So I believe um, as a woman fighting for climate action and climate justice, I believe that uh, this gives me more, like it, it gives me more, more, more power. It gives me more, 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 more experiences to talk about to the people out there that to the people out there that uh, women go through so much. And I believe people who are among the most affected can explain this better. They can explain this better to. They can give practical examples to people, and people can listen to this. What's been a highlight of, of your journey so far, other than the Antarctic chips? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, the highlight, I think, uh, really is working with uh, women and exploring ecofeminism. I think that's, that's my favorite aspect, um, which basically uh, means, uh, like, you know, to uh, look at the environmental movement. Um, and use it, uh, use it as uh, use it in a way to be able to promote um, the concept of uh, how um, you know, like uh, a woman nurtures um, her family or or even the environment, right? Like they, um, if you look at uh, just uh, how a woman nurtures her uh, own child or her family, to be able to use those concepts in a way to how it can be extrapolated to uh, preserving the environment. And another aspect of it is also looking at, um, you know, we call, uh, call the planet mother nature. And we look at it as in a female or feminine context and, and think about it as something to be taken care of, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think um, it was an amazing journey of learning about how me, me being a woman um, can bring my strengths uh, from my own, fem uh, you know, like um, uh, feminineness or whatever you want to call it. I don't know if I know I'm saying, using <laughs> the right terminology, but like um, from, from the fact that I am a woman, what can I bring to the table to the environmental movement? And how can I bring my skills and my... Um, and my own personality to it and uh, to be able to then share that with women from around the world. A theme that came up often was education and the power that education has to affect positive change. When I think of education I always think back to the power of the quotation that goes we'll only conserve what we love, we'll only love what we understand, and we'll only understand what we're taught. And I think the angels all unite under the idea that education, you know, not just of young people, although they are especially important, but using education as a vehicle to pull other people, our friends, family, our aunts, our uncles, distant relatives, 
into the conversation about the climate. And I guess that ties in to your your work and your role as an activist, because as I understand it, you were doing lots of work about raising awareness of the climate crisis, especially in local schools. How do young people react when they hear about it? Yeah, of course, uh, the young pupils in school are so receptive. They are so innocent. They are so young and ready to listen and, and ready to learn new things. Uh, we've, we've, we've really, we've, we've had very good, um, we've had very good results from the schools that we go to. Uh, because for the fact that we are, um, I'm, I'm also part of the team that is installing solar, solar panels in schools and, and eco-friendly stoves. After, after installing the, the solar panels, we sensitize the students and talk to them. And because we are giving them practical solutions and also explaining to them exactly what's happening, you find that uh, these students are so receptive. You find that um, they are talking about it. And even the next time you go back to the school, it's the same thing they are talking about. And you find that they've, they've actually planted more trees, they're practicing eco-friendly ways of living, they're practicing, um, they're practicing how to live sustainably. You go to their classrooms and, and uh, you, you reach a school and you find, uh, you find a dustbin uh, uh, with, with maybe a statement that, that talks about why you should protect the environment. So I believe the schools have started taking practical measures i believe schools are getting this message and i know uh, with time as we keep covering most schools this these solutions will may start from may start from the students may start from the schools uh, because also the advantage of talking to these students they have um they, they have uh, powerful voices that they'll, they'll be able to go to their parents and talk to them about what they learned in school. And I, I think parents listen to their kids more and they believe what their kids tell them more than listening to a stranger like an activist. <laughs> so maybe we have to go through these kids to talk to them, to take back the message to their parents. it needs to be skills-based and really focused on creating change. Because I think the issue in Ireland, I, I don't know if it'd be similar in the UK or other countries, it's very focused on very abstract scientific knowledge, which obviously you need, you need to have that grounding and knowing what the science is, but you also need to look at the social implications and the political implications and the fact that the climate crisis is rooted in so much inequality. And alongside that, you need to teach people how to organize collectively to create change rather than just focusing on this whole idea of individual accountability in education, which is the reduce, reuse, recycle, that kind of rhetoric in education, which doesn't give people the skills they need to create change. So, um, so I've really been focusing on Ireland's new strategy for the next 10 years around education for sustainable development. So really looking at, okay, how can we get skills-based education that teaches children how to create change, that teaches young people, this is how you organize together, this is how you directly tackle the issues, and global citizenship education that looks at this idea of intersectionality, of justice, of the fact that the climate crisis is an intersectional issue, it links into absolutely everything, and it is the result of injustice and exploitation, and really making sure that that's addressed within the Irish curriculum, but also further afield. A lot of what we did before the pandemic was going to classrooms and going to schools and asking 
teachers to give us like five to 10 minutes of their time so that we could talk about the climate crisis. And then we'd invite the students to come out after class to keep talking. Um, we would also bring students to frontline communities so that we could learn from each other. So there's that very real repository of knowledge from both sides, from the communities most impacted from, and from the students who actually like have learned about climate science in schools. And the exchange of knowledge is just so beautiful and so important. So following on from education, that leads me very nicely to a lesson that I in particular learned from the angels. And that was the need to hold people to account and to also be open to being held accountable. And in the following clips, we hear from Freya, who discusses the idea of holding the government to account when they fail to uphold the standards and expectations placed upon them. This is also something that Beth touched upon in her, her episode. Mitzi takes a different take and discusses holding people to account, especially where there's a power balance between the global north and the global south, for example. And it must be a really sort of hard balance for you because essentially a lot of what's happening, the climate crisis that's being faced by, you know, people in your country is largely because of the actions of people mm. in, in other countries. Exactly. And that's why it's, it's difficult because you don't want people to feel like they're powerless and helpless. Like I, we don't want them to think, okay, what can I do? Because even if I do everything I can here, nothing's going to change because most of the the blame and the responsibility are on global north countries and that's when we say that's why we also ask for accountability and we demand for justice like yes there's not much we can do inside the philippines but there's so much we can do by raising our voices and making sure that the global north countries and activists in global north countries hear our stories so that they can also bring our stories to their countries when it first started in 2016, um, I was still, well, you could say an ordinary member. Um, so I participated in demonstrations and tried to um, make publicity for the case. And then if we fast forward to this year or maybe uh, in 2020, then I was in the central board of Nature and Youth. Um, and I got to work quite closely with the case. So I was in some meetings with all the other organizations where we were planning and um, I got to um, be responsible for the international um, publicity. And uh, I was also working with social media in, uh, yeah, in relation to the court case. Um, and well, the outcome was quite sad, unfortunately, um, because we had the case up in three rounds. Um, on three different um, levels. And the first two times we won on some parts of our um, court case, but in the last round in the highest court in Norway, we lost on every single point. Um, and not every judge, judge was against us. Some of them voted um, for our case, but unfortunately, most of them didn't. Uh, and so we were very disappointed and there were a lot of, um, yeah, well, <laughs> Uh, yeah, we were very disappointed and it was quite hard to see if there were any um, anything good really that came out of the case. Uh, we didn't expect to lose at every single point, but we did. Um, but when we have talked to some lawyers afterwards, we have heard that there have been some small improvements or 
some small ones um, and they're, they're very technical and very uh, well I think you have to go to law school really to understand them so I won't get into them but <laughs> I think that at least um, well you can think say that all big um, fights um, yeah they, they start with some losses right so the first people who said that slavery were, were wrong they you know they wouldn't win any cases but today we of course we think that slavery is wrong and I think it's kind of the same with uh, with this that right now you know the court hasn't really uh, been updated or what you could say that I think it will change in the future. As you say you know you're paving the way this is something new and holding the the government to account as you say that will trickle down and hopefully in years to come people will be looking at this court case as a, a pioneering exercise that will shape things into the future. And I also think that um, this court, because the court, what they really said was that we cannot say that it is wrong, that the state is uh, giving these licenses to drilling for oil. But by doing that, they give all the responsibility to the politicians. And that means that the politicians, they can't really just say that, you know, they can't uh, say that they don't have any responsibility. Now it is really their responsibility. And the court has said that it is. Maybe that's also something positive. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's an incredible achievement and, you know, a huge congratulations to, to all of you for pulling it together. I really am in admiration and I think it's really about holding people to account and I think, think there's a lot that we, that we can take from this. Things like this can't be allowed considering the level of climate crisis that, that, that the world is facing. Something that we've all learnt this year is the power of support networks and the physiological psychological benefits big words, of surrounding yourself with people who understand your journey or your story or your fight and being able to lean on these people not just in times of need but to offer alternative perspectives or fresh ideas and energy so it was lovely to hear the angels talk about the impact that strong support networks have had on them well, I suppose the biggest thing is the support network because we're all very much an equal playing field when we're organizing strikes. So it really is that team effort and all of us working in a decentralized way and working in kind of a non-hierarchical way to make decisions as a group, which is really interesting to see and a really good dynamic, I think. I think the biggest thing with networks is those kind of connections and in terms of a learning. So using, you know, you're talking to people, you're learning from them and using them as opportunities to grow and kind of learn from other people's experiences and being able to share resources and also alongside that share support and support each other through when there's a difficulty. The support network in Fridays Future Ireland has gotten me through so many things. I think it's gotten a lot of people through the difficulties and the hardship because it's other people who are care, who are inspired and who know that this is a very serious issue that we need to be taking action on. And I think those networks, they allow you to learn so much and they allow you to get that strength and that people power when you're pushing for change. And I guess that's so important because otherwise I can't imagine what it would feel like to feel that you're pushing for these things alone yeah exactly I think with climate in particular it's such an overwhelming issue and that's why we see so much of anxiety particularly amongst teenagers and kind of young people because people are so stressed and they feel like I'm just one person what can I do but it's when you come together you get that feeling of hope from working with other determined young people I think uh, what I've learned most by being a uh, uh, part of the Arctic Angels, especially um, in the last few months, has been to 
learn from other Arctic angels, really, um, to understand uh, what these other amazing uh, women have to say from around the world, um, to bring their uh, cultural and uh, personal experiences into how they want to protect the environment and, and be an ice activist. That's what I've learned more than anything else. My personal highlight so far would, oh my God, it's gonna sound so cheesy, but it's, it's, it's the friends that I've made along the way. <laughs> that sounds like such a cringy answer, but it really is um, <laughs> my personal highlight. Like we are battling such a difficult, situation like that taking like taking down the climate crisis also means dealing with all the systemic oppression and injustices of the world and that sounds like such a big and daunting task um so i am so grateful that you know along the way i've made these amazing friends from my country and from every part of the world except antarctica antarctica <laughs> but like like literally there is a friend in every continent that is fighting for the same thing that you are and that is such a beautiful thing to me that that gives me so much hope bring it up a notch and knowing that you're not just fighting in your own country but you're fighting with people across the world for the same thing it, it almost seems impossible to me to lose because there is literally so many of us fighting for the same thing. How can we lose? Like victory is inevitable in my eyes. So as we draw to a close and closer to the end of the episode, I wanted to touch on one of the most vital things that has been discussed across the episodes. And that's the fact that we we talk about the climate crisis like it's something yet to happen. But as, as we've heard and as you'll hear, it's happening right now and it's affecting people right now across the world. It's it's one of the lessons that I hope that you'll take away from the episodes and that you come away from the season like I have with a reiterated sense of urgency and understanding that the emphasis really is on the people, businesses, organisations in the global north or the least impacted people and areas to take action. In Uganda, climate change is actually so visible. It's so, so visible. Uh, currently, the temperatures are so high to an extent of getting a headache just because you're in the sun or the, or the house is too hot, the rooms are so hot, the offices are so hot. And remember in Uganda, people, very few people can afford ACs, very few people can afford uh, things that can help them adapt to this. So the temperatures are very, very high. People are, people are going without water to drink, especially in, in, in rural areas, especially the poor people, because I believe their sources of water have dried up. And most people in Uganda survive on agriculture for a living. And imagine with the prolonged droughts, uh, I believe farmers are, are losing out a lot. Uh, very many families are going to lack food. Very many families are going to die of hunger. And also we, we have, we've seen floods in the Western part of Uganda, devastating floods, uh, diseases, people, and, and this is exposing people to diseases like malaria, like cholera, 
generally climate change is so real in my country. Climate change is so visible. Climate change is everywhere. You wake up and it's just at your door. You go to sleep and you're feeling it. It is so real in my country and it hurts that uh, very little is being done about it. There was actually a very defining moment when I decided to become an activist. Um, it was very deliberate. Um, so before this moment, I was like, I cared about the environment. I talked to people and, and you know, did my own part um, in, in my environmental advocacy. But when I was able to talk to an indigenous leader of our land, he was telling me about how they were being displaced and killed and harassed and militarized all for protecting their land. And then he, after saying all those atrocities, he ever so simply shrugged and then chuckled and said, that's why we have no choice but to fight back. Then he just kept going. And it was the simplicity of his words, the fact that he wasn't even trying to convince us of anything that really got to me. Like, I realized then and there that I had this quote-unquote privilege of being able to choose to become an activist. But then if I really think about it, he's right. We all have no choice but to be activists at this point. Our planet, our home, our lives are being threatened. Exactly. And I think a lot of Western kind of education attitudes toward the climate crisis is, oh, it's happening somewhere else. I think it's the same as Western attitudes towards a lot of things. And I think if you're like, if you really want to get into it, it goes back to the fact that a lot of Western powers were colonialists and that the climate crisis is a result of the kind of exploitation that came from that history and that is still hurting the countries that were exploited by and continue to be exploited by the global north and Western countries. And I think that's why we're able to ignore it and push it down the line. And um, we can't continue to do that because we're the ones causing the crisis. It is global north causing the crisis and the global south suffering as a result. I do see it in some ways. For example, the winters here, they are very warm and very unstable. So um, I live at a place that's known for being like uh, a paradise for skiing. <laughs> it's very famous for that. Um, but currently, you know, every year there's, it, the weather goes up and down. So instead of there just being a lot of snow all the winter, which there was before, now it's, you know, it melts and there's a lot of ice and then suddenly it snows and then it melts again. Um, so I think that's the way we're noticing it right now. And we're quite lucky in that way. But at the same time, time I think it's very, unfortunate that we don't feel the consequences because Norway is one of the biggest polluters at least if you look at all the oil that we export and I think that a lot of Norwegians don't really understand uh, how serious it is and that we are all going to be affected in the future. I wonder if that's what differentiate the youth in particular because it is that really interesting balance of anger and a feeling of injustice but combined with a sort of sheer determination to get things done. Exactly. And I think it's really that feeling of this is an acute crisis. We know that this is happening right now. And, you know, I think we hear a lot of rhetoric, particularly, I think, from politicians about like, oh, this is their future. This is children's futures. That's why they're angry. and That's why they're scared. But it's not just that because the climate crisis isn't an issue that's going to affect people 20 years down the line. It's been affecting people for decades, particularly people in the global south. And it is still affecting people every single day and costing lives every single day. It's just Western countries find it easy to ignore it at the moment. But it isn't about our futures, it's about right now. And I think young people are really standing up for that and speaking about that and raising attention to that issue to make sure change happens, not just 30 years down the line when we're in power. 
I mean, the Philippines is the fourth most climate vulnerable country in the world um, in the past decade. And if the ice crisis, you know, continues, if, if we reach that um, tipping point, we will be one of the ones that are most impacted. Like, we will be the ones who experience the worst sea level rising, the worst typhoons, the worst um, droughts. And so this is something that we have to care about and we don't talk about it enough. We wanted to leave things on a positive note and so I've brought together all of the key lessons that the angels wanted to pass along to new activists, seasoned activists, people who wouldn't call themselves activists for thinking about the next stages. The first thing to know is that you don't have to be perfect. Um, I think we have this idea that to be an activist, you need to be perfectly, you know, eco all the time. And you'll know this yourself, like that isn't possible under our current structures, like obviously make that attempt. But don't feel like you have to be perfect it is a learning experience and from that be willing to learn and um, from other people be willing to throw yourself into the deep end to challenge yourself and kind of keep that hope and keep that hope from other people learn from other people have conversations with other people and maintain that drive and that hope and it's okay to feel angry it's okay to feel sad but just keep pushing for change um i think uh, what i did was really lead with my heart um, I try to um, look at um, what what can I do uh, that that can make even the smallest difference. And um, I really didn't care about like um, who's listening, but rather like if I am able to do the right thing. Yeah. And a lot of young people these days get swayed away because of social media. And, you know, it's, it's more about how many likes we get or how much we, how many views we received um, rather than the impact itself. So I think uh, what I want to tell young people especially is to switch off the social media and it will immensely reduce that eco-anxiety in the process and um, really to focus on seeing what what they really can do and and lead from their heart well i think that you know not being close to the arctic it's not a problem because the problem is global and we have to act locally um, and i think that's one thing that I'm seeing, at least when I'm being on social media and what I guess that a lot of people are seeing if they are trying to look at what they can do, is that, you know, a lot of people are talking about that they should bring their own uh, reusable bags to the grocery store and stuff like that. And that's great. But I think that people underestimate the power of politics and especially young people. I know a lot of people who care about the planet and, you know, what they end up doing for the planet is thrifting or buying a reusable straw. And uh, they kind of don't really, I think that a lot of people don't know how they should act if they want to be politically active and push their politicians, but it's really important to do so. And obviously it's different in different parts of the world, how uh, if you're even able to do it, for example, in Russia, you know, uh, it's actually quite dangerous to do so. Uh, while here in Norway, we're really lucky and you know, there's no co consequences for me going onto the street and demonstrating. but. I think if you're able to, then it's really great to try to work with politics. And then also another thing is to um, take care of yourself. I feel like a lot of people who are active in 
um, you know, trying to take care of the planet and make some big changes that they forget to care for themselves. And I feel like I'm not really the one who should be saying this because as I just said, you know, work from eight in the morning to nine in the afternoon on typical day. <laughs> but still, it's really important to <laughs> prioritize your health and your well-being. Climate change cuts across all sectors. Climate change is a gender issue. Climate change is a social issue. Climate change is a health issue. Climate change is an education issue. Climate change is, it affects everything. So I, I, I think because climate change affects everything, I believe that climate change concerns everyone and everyone needs to get involved. Everyone needs to do something. It doesn't matter how big or small it is. You just need to do something for the planet. You need to, you need to get a hold of something that you can do to the right of time. We have very limited time and we want to see that our planet is saved before it's too late. If, any, if anyone listening has to remember something, it's that you don't go into a community and dictate knowledge like like knowledge and education cannot be top down you have to do an exchange because they have knowledge and experiences that we will never understand and that we will never fully grasp and that knowledge i would say is a lot richer because like science and, and numbers that's something you can learn but working off the land and having your livelihood be tied to the environment is something you will only learn if you actually do it Always make sure that you're listening to the people most impacted and highlighting and amplifying their stories. We all have our own sets of privileges. So even I am privileged and I have to amplify the voices of those most marginalized in my country. If you are a white activist, then you have to um, highlight and amplify the voices of BIPOC activists. And this is so, so important because the climate crisis is an intersectional crisis. Those who are most impacted by the climate crisis are also those who are already impacted by sexism, fascism, racism, um, class inequality. And so it's all of this together and we have to be very, very aware of the privileges that we all have. And we have to realize that it is going to be a lifelong journey of unlearning the systemic injustices and systems of oppression that's been ingrained in us and in society. And so. We have to be open to being called out. We have to be open to have these difficult conversations because learning and changing is not an easy process. Of course, it's going to hurt to find out that you are being um, racist or, or um, colonialist, even if you're not doing it on purpose. So we have to make sure that we're willing to change because we're doing this as a movement, like for me, activism and being an activist is just about being a good person. And sometimes it's not easy because you were taught differently and it's not your fault if, if you were taught differently. It's just that you have to be open to changing. The second thing is, I really believe that, um, there's a quote actually, um, a true revolutionary has to be guided by feelings of love and I believe in that so much. Like people ask me, Mitzi, how do you not get burnt out or how do you avoid getting burnt out? And for me at this point, my activism no longer stems from a place of anger and sadness. It used to be like anger, fear, and sadness. 
but now it's grown and developed into this place of love for the people, for the environment, for what I'm doing. And it's a much more sustainable force to drive you forward. And it's so important that we have that sustainability because it's going to be a very, very long, um, very, very, very long struggle. And with that, season two draws to a close. Uh, I really hope that you've enjoyed the season and this episode and have been able to take away a lesson or a story or a thought or two that might inspire you to take action, which really is what this podcast is all about. A huge thank you to all of the Arctic Angels for sharing their stories with us and I hope that you'll stand with them in their work and their actions as as well as joining with Global Choices in their fight for the protection of the Arctic and the Global Commons. If you've enjoyed the episode in the series, just a little ask from me. It would be lovely if you shared this with your friends, your family or if you gave us a, a review or a rating on your platform of choice. We'd be hugely grateful and it would mean that we can help spread the word to more people. To follow the Arctic Angels, they are at GC Arctic Angels on Instagram and Twitter. I'll be turning each of these themes into little soundbite episodes so that if you wanted to find out more or you're particularly interested in a specific area or topic, that should be super easy for you to find. If you think that we should do a season three and you have any ideas and suggestions for themes or guests, please do let us know. We're at Cobb and Grand Co on Instagram. See you next time.